Then he also said to him who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back when you, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. It really is a uh, glass is either half empty or half full kind of thing. Because when we come here on the Sunday before Christmas, it's very easy to look around and see all the empty uh, spaces where our members normally sit and know that they're gone traveling on the road to visit friends and family. Uh, but the, the glass is, is half full side of it is that it's always a wonderful, wonderful blessing to come here and to see people who normally are not sitting in these pews who are here because you're visiting family. Uh, we're delighted that you're here this morning. We're delighted that you've chosen the University Church to come and worship. And, uh, and remember for that for those of our members who are gone, that this is such a large part of what Christmas is all about. They have gone to visit and be with extended family. And let's just pray that they have a, a wonderful and rich and dry holiday season. We're glad you're here this morning. You know, so much of, of Christmas is kind of, uh, at least the way I've judged it, is uh, one of three stages. First of all, you're uh, waking up on Christmas morning filled with anticipation. You can't wait to open those gifts, those presents, and see what Santa Claus has brought you. And then the next stage is you're, you're anticipating Christmas morning because you can't wait to see the look in, in the eyes of your children as they open their presents and see what Santa Claus has brought them. And the third stage is when everybody is grown and gone, and you're just counting the days when it's safe to go back to East Chase again. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Mia will come through the room and say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to run to Ulta, and I'm going, no, hon, you're not going to run to Ulta. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, that's kind of the way it is. But uh, then all of a sudden, uh, the anticipation is over. The opening of the presents is over. Uh, the shopping is over. And uh, all of a sudden, you're, you're recycling and resetting the clock for this time next year, which is absolutely amazing, isn't it? Because it seems like I've said something similar to this just uh, like six weeks ago when we had Christmas the last time, which is another part of our Christmas observation. It seems like when I was a kid, you know, Christmas came at least every five to ten years, and now it seems like it comes every six weeks, but that's a part of what life is all about. The traditions of Christmas survive and have survived through the centuries, and you look around and you see even in your own neighborhood, representations of some of what that's all about. We know that for some people there, is, there are religious elements, as, as has already been expressed in this assembly this morning. There is, of course, the exchanging of gifts, which is a part of our Christmas tradition. There is time spent at home with our families and, and an odd mixture of decorating trees and, and our houses. I, I don't know about you, but in my neighborhood, uh, we have a family that we refer to as the Griswolds. I will not explain why, but uh, 
It's always interesting to see what assortment of decorations that they put uh, and inundate their house with. And it's always interesting to see those kinds of things. And then there's something about the white bearded jolly old guy named Santa Claus who lives at the North Pole. It includes reindeer and elves. And let's not even mention the creepy elf on the shelf that has become a staple in some homes. It's hard to name everything that's a part of our celebration of Christmas because that list could be made almost infinitely long. I heard about a little boy who was only three years of age. I I read about this somewhere. I don't remember a bulletin article or whatever. And his name was Nathan French, just three years old. And his parents made the mistake of taking him twice in one holiday season within one week of seeing Santa Claus at the mall. The problem was it was a different Santa. And so as usual, Santa asked him once he was sitting in Santa's lap, what he, what he wanted for Christmas? And Nathan replied, I told you already. I just told you last week what I wanted. Well, he could not grasp the fact that he was visiting two different Santas. And it can be a little bit confusing as we see all of the different ways that we express our appreciation for this season. Christmas, as we know, is not always a happy time for some people. I think Ray has even implied that in some of the comments that he made this morning. It can be a very difficult season, filled with sorrow and loneliness, especially for people who are are experiencing Christmas for the first time without that special someone in their lives. And to know that there's an empty chair in our house. And so for some people, we acknowledge that you may well be glad when the the holiday is over because of that, that feeling of sorrow and loss that you're experiencing And we want you to know that that our prayers and our hearts are with you as you experience uh, what can be a a bitter season for you, but that we pray that time will help to heal that wound. I want you to know that I'm using uh, the word Christmas this morning in an accommodative sense. I'm not thinking so much about any of the particular traditions that we use in celebrating the season. I'm thinking of it in terms of the concept of, of giving because that's so much of what a part of Christmas is all about. And I want to isolate that and focus that just a little bit more this morning in our, in our study as we think not just about giving in general, but specifically about God's giving and how much that he has given to us and how he continues to give to us rich blessings every day of our lives. Let me first say that even though December the 25th will soon be over, that Christmas, in fact, is not over. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. And if you want to turn there, follow along. I would encourage you to do that. These are just uh, rich verses, chock full of meaning and, and comfort and reassurance to those of us who are believers. Again, writing to the Romans in chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, going through, through verse 32. Here's what Paul writes by inspiration. And I say that to remind you that these are not just Paul's words. These are the words. This is the message of God. He says, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't there comfort and and consolation in hearing that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not, listen specifically to verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us All things. Did you get that? If God did not withhold the most precious thing to him, which was his son, do you really think that he is going to renege? That he is going to hold back anything in our lives that is good for us? I think that's the question that Paul is raising. 
But there are some other things in this context that Paul is referring to that I want us to point out before we move on. The fact that, verse 28, that all things work together for good, that them beloved love the Lord, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's one of the things that contextually Paul is talking about here in terms of what God has given to us, the assurance to know that even though you may be going through hard times right now, that God is using that for your good, for your benefit, and that you can come out on the other side of that experience a better and stronger person, more vital in your spiritual life than you've ever been before. Also, context tells us that he's speaking about those whom God did foreknow to be a part of the redeemed. That's what he's talking about in verse 29. To use Paul's very language there, those who were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's not talking about specific individuals there, but he is talking about the body of believers, the church who has been predetermined by God to be conformed to the image of his son. Not everybody in the world, as we know, is wanting to do that. Only those who are part of his spiritual kingdom, the eternal kingdom of the church, are the ones who are committed to being transformed into the image of Christ on a daily basis. And then to use Paul's very language, uh, this predestination concept, this conforming to the image of his son, is a vital factor in our spiritual development. And then notice in verses 29 and 30, where he says that those who are called are justified and glorified. You want to talk about opening a gift, folks, to know that you are justified and glorified because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ is something that you and I really need to take to the bank and make an immediate deposit. Christmas is not over, Paul is arguing. If if God spared not his only son, then he will freely give us all the things that we need to be able to make it all the way. So I, I want us to know this morning, I want us to be reassured that God's giving was not over when he gave his only son. That's where his giving really started. That's where the magnanimous nature of our God, that's where we catch the first and not the last glimpse of his magnanimous nature. We all who are part of the ecclesia, the church, were before, Paul says, determined to be conformed to the image of the Son, and that means that we are all justified and we're all glorified. God's giving just keeps on giving and giving and giving. Now I want to shift gears for a moment and turn to Luke chapter 15. You feel free to turn there if you want to follow along. I believe most of you are familiar with the account. And the reason for the three parables that you find in Luke 15. And if you don't remember, you might want to just take a moment to read verses 1 and 2. And then you'll see the reason why Jesus gave those three parables of three lost things in Luke chapter 15. This is one of the the best known and well-loved stories that Jesus ever told. The three parables about lost things in Luke 15. Primarily, I want us to focus on the last of those parables. And of course, that's the story of a father who had two sons. And it's often called the parable of the prodigal son. But someone has pointed out that it might better be known as the parable of the compassionate father. Because that's really the emphasis of that parable. It's really about what kind of a father our God is. So the father in the story represents God. The older brother <clears throat> represents the Pharisees. And the younger brother who left home represents sinners who make that, that decision to leave home, to separate themselves from the security and the provisions of fellowship with their, with their father in his house. Now remember, as Luke 15 begins, the scribes and the Pharisees had criticized Jesus 
for eating with sinners. We, we can't believe that this man claims to be God's son. Doesn't he know who he's eating with? And if you're familiar with scripture, you're familiar with the fact that that was a common charge against Jesus. Surely he knows what kind of woman this is who washes his feet, that kind of thing. And here they're on him again. He's, he's eating with people who are known sinners. Doesn't he know that he needs to stay away from that kind of people if for no other reason to protect his reputation? And so that's how these parables, that's, that, that's the genesis of them. And that criticism brought forth Jesus' response in the three parables that are found in Luke chapter 15. Have you noticed, and if not, this part of it, don't, don't ruin my sermon here. This is a part of what I want to point out. At the end of the parable, how the, what the father said to the older son, as this story concludes, the son complained, and I'm talking about the older son now, the one who stayed home. He complained because the father had received the prodigal back home with lavish gifts and had even thrown him a party. That seemed to be the thing that stuck in the craw of the older brother the very most. And the older son said to his father, you've never given me a goat that I might even have a party with my friends. And remember what the father, look at verse 22. Here's what the father had ordered up for the younger son's homecoming party. It was a fatted calf. <clears throat> but the older brother is stewing in the juices of his own discontentment and his own bitterness, and he complains in verse 29, you never even gave me a baby goat so that I could make merry with my friends. Here, you're killing a fatted calf for this brother who does not deserve anything, and you never gave me a baby goat that I might be able to have a party with my friends. Watch the father's response, if you will, in verses 31 and 32. Son... You are ever with me, and all that I have is yours. It was suitable. That just means it was right that we should make merry and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. That father is begging the older son, don't lose sight of what's taking place here. Do not miss the point. Your brother was lost, now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. I mean, for crying out loud, for all, for all the world, that ought to be the emphasis of what we're celebrating here. And surely you can find it in your heart to join in that celebration. I'm telling you this morning that for a child of God, Christmas is not over. It's never over. Because even if you consciously leave the spiritual security of your father's house, that's the church. You turn your back on the cross, but then you decide to come home like the prodigal son did. You come to yourself in the hog pen of life, and you say, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to make things right with my father. When you do that, you know that God's response will always be, 100% of the time, welcome home, son. And that he will restore you to a place of sonship. In that family, Christmas is never over for a child of God. No matter what happens, as long as we have the desire and we take the necessary steps to retrace our steps and go back home, we can know that the, the porch light is still on and that the father is waiting with open arms to receive us. The younger son was welcomed back into that family. Please don't miss that. Not as a servant, 
And that was all that he requested. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. But, but he was welcomed back as a son. You're going to get your name back on the family checkbook. You're going to be able to put your posters back up on your bedroom wall. All of these things that the father called for, the robe, the ring, the shoes, the fatted calf, all of these I want us to appreciate were signs of sonship. I guarantee you the hired hands did not get any of those things when they signed on to work for this rich man. And yet the son is experiencing all of that even though he doesn't deserve it. Christmas is never over. One of the things that the older brother did not understand, I think, was the grace and the mercy and the bounty that the father was ready to give him. And I'm, I'm afraid, folks, if we're not careful, that we can be a whole lot like that older brother. I'm just begging us not to. But, but I believe that the older brother is put in there for more than just, you know, an injection of conflict into this story. I believe he's there so that we can, if we're anything like him or if we have a tendency to think that way, that we can be warned not to do that. Because we can murmur and we can complain when the Father is ready to bless us more than we could ever imagine. We want the world. And we don't realize that the Father is, is just waiting to give us the world and the world to come. We want physical and material things, and that may be the sum and substance of our prayers. And the Father is ready to give us what we need in this life, as well as unlimited spiritual blessings, which Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1 verse 3, or every one of them is found in Christ Jesus. Folks, before you turn your back on Jesus and leave him, remember that you are, if you do that, you are forfeiting every spiritual blessing. Because they are all, not a single one of them is found outside of Christ. All of them are found in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We want rags. When the Lord is, is ready to give us, in the words of Isaiah, beauty for ashes and garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's Isaiah 61 verse 3. That would be a passage worth reading again and remembering. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 19, if you want to check it out. Ephesians 3 beginning with verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, world without end. Now don't miss that. What God wants to give us is the fullness of God beyond what we are able even to ask or think. More than you've ever imagined, God is able to give to each of his children, and that includes us if we're part of his spiritual family this morning. He tells the Corinthian Christians basically the same thing, just using different words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe it is, verse 9 beginning, Paul writes by inspiration, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that wonderful? To know when we open that package, when we someday see the face of Jesus in eternity, to know that even beyond anything that we've ever imagined in our wildest dreams, God is more than able and willing to give us who love him. I'm telling you, Christmas is not over. For the Christian, it will last 
all year long and all through eternity. And that's what the older brother in Luke 15 did not understand. And I'm afraid that's what we sometimes don't fully grasp either. And if we stay in God's will, in the safety and security of God's house, all of our needs are going to be provided for. And let me tell you, the retirement plan, it's out of this world. God opens the windows of heaven. When we turn our Bibles to the Old Testament section, we come to appreciate that there were Old Testament prophets who understood the nature of God that we serve even better than a lot of modern day people. Let me give you one example of that. The very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was writing to correct the sinfulness and the ungodly behavior of the Jews of his day. These were people who were God's chosen people who were selectly, or, or specifically, I should say, selected by God to be his chosen nation, and he nurtured them and cultivated them accordingly. They were given the right to the Ten Commandments, to the laws of God. And, and all of those things should have been considered by them to be a wonderful Christmas present that they could open every day of the year. And, and they were offering to God blind and sick animals for sacrifice. You don't have to know much about the Old Testament to know that one of the specific regulations for sacrificing an animal to God under the Old Testament regulations was that it be the cream of the crop, that it be the first of the flock, or whatever it was that you were offering. It needed to be the best, because you did not offer to God second best. That, that was a reflection upon the worshiper, and it was also a reflection upon the one that you were worshiping, and that is a sovereign, holy God. So you just didn't do that. But that's what the Jews in Malachi's day were doing. They were bringing the worst. Well, that one's about to die, so let's take it, and we'll sacrifice that to God. And so Malachi is writing to these people, and he's got some questions for them. Listen to what he asks them. In light of that spiritually uh, awful state that they had come to realize or they were about to realize once Malachi finished his message. Malachi 3, <coughs> beginning with verse 8. Among those questions was this one. Will a man rob God? And yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me herewith, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that shall not be room enough to receive it. That absolutely blows me away. Here they were offering to God in their sacrifices the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth best of their flocks and offerings. And yet God says, don't you realize that I'm willing to open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings on you that you could never, ever imagine. God's response is love. It's bounty. It's blessing after blessing after blessing. And what kind of response should that have evoked in the Jewish people? Appreciation. Gratitude. God, we're never going to do that again. You've given us your best, and now we're going to give you our best. We commit ourselves. We vow that we're going to do that from now on. I, I'm just relating that what can be an obscure Old Testament account to help us to appreciate 
that God does not demand a gift of us today in the church, in the Christian era. He does not demand a gift of us because he's self-centered or because he needs our gifts. You may also remember that he rebuked Israel by saying this. This is found, by the way, in Psalm 50. If you want to turn there, I'm beginning with verse 8. Psalm 50 began with verse 8. I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine in all its fullness. And I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the flesh of goats. Offer to God thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. If you want a picture of how it ought to work, David is giving us one. David is telling us that the God of the universe is not dependent on our sacrifices. They are for our good. Don't miss that. It's not because God needs something and God is going to go hungry if you don't offer your burnt offerings. That's not the way it works. Every time God has asked us to give him something, it is always for our benefit. We need to learn that, that to give because God wants to enrich our lives. And, and, and when the contribution plate goes by us on Sunday mornings, again, it's not because God needs extra money in his coffers. It's because we need to learn the blessing of having a giving heart. When will we get it? When will we get to that place when we really believe Luke 6, 38 is absolutely correct? Give and it'll be given to you. Pressed down, running over, shaken down. Will men give unto your bosom? For with the same measure that you give, it shall be measured back to you again. When will we get it? You can't outgive God. God loves us. And any time he requires anything of us, it's because Christmas isn't over. And he wants to bless us every day of our lives. He's willing, both Malachi and David says, to open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so great that we just can't even find a place to contain it. Now here's the point. We don't, we don't have a bucket big enough to hold everything that God is willing and able to give to his people. Amen. Isn't it wonderful to serve a God like that? Remember when David, this same David, wrote the familiar words of, of Psalm 23. They include this statement found in verse 5, the great 23rd Psalm. Verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Remember the next statement. My cup runs over. One version of that actually reads, my cup overflows. If we're waiting for Christmas morning to be blessed, we've either been waiting too long or not long enough. God says, if you're my child, Christmas is never over. That there is something to bless your life every single day. Songwriter and recording artist Darius Rucker some of you may be better familiar with as the front man for Hootie and the Blowfish before he went country, wrote a song entitled What God Wants for Christmas. The lyrics go like this. Old man, 
playing Santa Claus, blew into town with old Jack Frost. Now he's handing out candy canes and smiles for free. People scurry with their lists, rushing around to buy those gifts that will end up wrapped underneath the tree. I'm, I'm sitting at this red light looking at a manger scene, watching snowflakes kiss the baby, and, and it makes me think. I wonder what God wants for Christmas. Something that you can't find in a store. Maybe peace on earth. No more empty seats in church. Might be what's on his list. I wonder what God wants for Christmas. What do you give someone who gave his only son? What if we believe in him like, like he believes in us? I wonder what God wants for Christmas. What might put a smile on his face? Every Bible with no dust. The devil giving up might be what's on his list. I wonder what God wants for Christmas. What kind of gift from you and me? More sister, more brother, more love for one another. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what God wants. By now, we ought to know what God wants for Christmas. Please note the few of the things mentioned in that song. And I think that's, it's, it's certainly not biblical, but it's deeply insightful. What God might want for Christmas, like peace on earth and no more empty seats in church. For us to believe in him the way he believes in us. For our Bibles to be without dust. For Satan to give up. More sister, more brother, more loving one another. Surely by now we ought to know what God wants for Christmas. Let me leave you with one last thought before we end this study. A key word to describe the kingdom of God in scripture is the word feast or, or banquet. It's the idea of God throwing a party. And he's invited all of us to be a part of it. God wanted to invite us to come to a banquet, a marriage feast for his son. And David said that God had prepared a table for him before or in the presence of his enemies. That is to show that I am in that, that wonderful relationship with God when, when my enemies even aren't. And, and, and Paul refers to the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. And table fellowship is an important concept in Scripture. With Jew and Gentile eating together, with, with rich and poor, with slave and free. But the idea of fellowship comes from another more important one. It comes from God having invited all of mankind to a feast. God has invited everyone to come and to share that kind of fellowship with him. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He wants us to come to his banquet. He wants us to be a part of that feast. Now let me mention this. Hermeneutically, before we quit, Luke 14, we, we looked at Luke 15 a moment ago with the three parables of lost things. Luke 14 contains three parables about feasts. And the first one is about where to sit when you come to the feast. Interestingly enough, one should take a lower seat is the point of the passage rather than taking the most important prominent position. That's what Jesus said in that parable. And then he said, if you look at verse 11 of Luke 14, for whosoever exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself, he'll be exalted. The second parable is about whom you invite. When you throw a feast, Jesus taught, you should not just invite your rich friends and your own family members. Rather, you ought to invite the poor and the crippled and the blind. In the resurrection of the just, you'll be repaid if you do that, if you show that simple kindness to those 
who are not obligated to receive any of those blessings. A guest who heard Jesus, I I love the way those parables end in verse 15. A guest who heard Jesus giving these parables remarked, and and, and I, I put an exclamation point in the text after this, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Wow, amen to that. And then Jesus told that third parable, that third banquet parable. This parable was a man who, who made a great supper and invited a lot of people to come. And one by one, the Bible says, they, they began to make excuses. One of them had bought some land. Another one had bought some oxen. One of them had married a wife. That's the way that works, by the way. And, and the, master, the master told the servant uh, to go out into the highways. If these people are not willing to accept my gracious invitation to come to a feast, then you go out into the highways and the hedges and you invite the poor and the crippled and the blind to the banquet. One of the points of this great parable, according to verse 23, is God wants his house to be filled. That tells me that there's never enough people in his church. That's why he's given us the marching orders to go share the gospel with every creature. He wants his house to be full. He wants everyone to enjoy the banquet, the feast. There's nothing that dishonors a host more than just for a few people to accept his gracious invitation. So in Jesus' parable, the benefit, again, is not for the host. It's for those who have been invited. Please don't miss that. We need the blessings from the table of God in the kingdom of God. One last quotation I want to share with you. John Clay Poole has written about that. Quote, I can think of no better image for the biblical understanding of God than that of a host or a gracious party giver. No image gathers up the things that are revealed in Holy Scripture about God more than this. Here's generosity. Here's abundance, here's joyfulness and exuberance all bound up together, end quote. He's exactly right. So remember that for God's people, Christmas is never over. It will never be over as long as God exists. And we're asking you this morning, are you willing to accept his invitation to be his child this morning? Turn your back on this world in sincere repentance on your, on your past life. Be sorry for those sins. Commit yourself to never repeating them ever again. Confess Jesus as God's son and be baptized and accept his gracious invitation. As we t- sometimes sing, all things already come to the feast. While we stand, while we sing.